Greetings. Welcome to the Asana Kitchen podcast. I'm David Garig. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know about my fall online course. It's called Asana Principles for Ashtangis. So it's, it meets every Saturday for 12 weeks starting September 12th. It's in the mornings for um, either two or two and a half hours. And you can do it live or uh, watch and listen to the recorded version on your own time. Uh, it's a sliding scale of 225 to 450. And so it's, there's six asana principles. And so that's, um, it's tw a 12 week course. So I spend two weeks on each principle. And um, there's a asana, very practical kind of in your practice, your asanas aspect to, to each principle. And then there's a philosophy section that is uh, complementary to and informing the asana part. So um, there are such themes as the single position, the art of the crouch and spring, uh, bandhas is one, uh, one of the principles, or mudra, the sealing of energy, and uh, breathing is, is one. And so these are like the heavy hitters, the root aspects of practice that help you develop your practical asana practice, but also they help you to see how to um, extract like yoga philosophy and real uh, valuable uh, life skills and uh, knowledge about how to live better uh, through your practice. So I would love to have you join me and um, you can find out more information about it on my website. And today's subject is finding your dharma. And um, so I'm going to give you some, some real practical ideas for how do you f figure out what your sacred work is here uh, on this planet while you're alive. And, and somebody asked, I, I was giving a Q&A in dharma. I was talking a lot about this subject of dharma. Somebody actually asked that on the comment thread, so I decided to do a whole podcast on it because I actually have a practical list. But first, first of all, you want to contemplate that dharma. Like, what does that actually mean to you, the concept? And, um, and we could spend the whole podcast on that question. It would be very fruitful, but then we would miss the point of these um, finding the Dharma. So to a certain degree, we're going to assume that we, you have a working definition of d Dharma. But I am going to uh, just give you a little t something to uh, inspire you or to think about. And because to me, it's, it's one of the things to finding your Dharma is contemplating the, the very concept of sacred work. Okay. And because it's a very big thing. It's like in the, it's in the center of your life. And it, um, and it's like answering these big questions. So I have a list of them that I'm going to go through. It's like um, big questions. What is the reason I was born? And uh, what am I doing here? What is my purpose or purposes? And what would constitute my life well-lived uh, if, as I look back upon having lived it? What constitutes the ultimate me? Like, what do I envision for myself? And then what is my spiritual faith? 
What's my spiritual viewpoint or stance? Um, what is my, what represents my, my highest good, my most sacred? And then, um, and then also what, for me, like, like the, that idea of the ultimate me, like what would it be for me to fulfill my human potential? Because I, I, I see it as this, I'm a human being and, and what, what is the essence of the human being? And what is the essence of this human being? And then also to go even further, because to me, the essence of this human being, this single me, is to be part of the evolution of all human beings, of humanity. And, um, and so like what represents the ideal or the perfection uh, of the human? And, and of course you would consider things like uh, justice, like how we all are interconnected. And this is why the spiritual viewpoint matters. It's like, what is your faith? What is your, your core belief about what is going on here? And so to me, there's a, well, there's a, this kind of universal suffering and the spirituality, the spiritual aspect of life is acknowledging that suffering and the, the collectiveness of it. And, um, and to have a spiritual life is to kind of take responsibility to take on that, uh, or to want to be, do your part to uh, lessen or end that suffering. And, and then also though, the, the ideal, not just the moving away from the negative, but going towards the, the light or like the justice and love and peace and um, how we can all get along with all of our differences and what kind of structures or disciplines or uh, communications and societies and what kind of uh, things do we need to agree upon and, and set in place in order to live together in harmony. <sighs> okay, and then um, lastly on those big questions that you, that those have to be on your mind. If you're wondering, what is my Dharma? How will I find it? Well, this is where you're gonna find it is in these kind of questions. Uh, and then this last one, what must I do before I die? You see, and I love how in the Indian mythology, the Yama, the god of death, is also called Dharma Raj, the king of Dharma, the king of sacred duty. And so, and this really ties, ties together the, the idea that your death and your Dharma are intimately connected. So your death is uh, like Yama, he's the limiter. It means restraint. And so he's the ultimate limiter, right? If, if we could go on forever, just keep living, then we would never really have to decide on a purpose. There would be, or there would be no real urgency to uh, get serious and make choices and think about what we value most and then start lining up our actions with those things. And so, so your death is this fearful thing that we kind of hide from and don't want to think about. And, and yet, your death is your greatest ally. And, and in Indian mythology, they depict that perfectly because death is on one hand, uh, he's, uh, he dresses in black, he's got red eyes, he's got a gory uh, teeth and 
he's carrying a noose and riding a black buffalo. It's what you would think of death, a terrifying specter that can come and come, appear among you and lasso you with his noose at any time. And so, but then, but then also Yama was the first person to die. And so he, it, be, it became his dharma to help uh, people negotiate the time after death and to kind of tally. So he sits on the throne of justice, um, Yama, as Dharma Raj, because Dharma also means justice. And um, he, so he has a scribe, his name is Chitragupta, meaning rich in secrets, and who has a tally of all your actions throughout your life. And so they, they look through the tally while you're standing there after you die, and then they kind of decide what is next for you. And so in this uh, mythological sense, then um, you come into the, you, you don't come into the world as a blank slate. You, you come in with certain bents and they're called um, vasanas or um, deep rooted desires, kind of peculiar uh, th things that you're already directed towards by being born. And, um, and so in a way, your Dharma Raj, he, he it's almost like the between you and him and what has happened in your your past karma it's like preordained to a certain degree like you come out of the womb with this kind of work and it's a tricky wording because if you look at the word dharma um, you can kind of get the feeling for it because so it's not specific work like it's not not specific in the sense of that all the details are settled before you're born. It's not that kind of a preordained thing. And so the word dharma, it means like peculiarity or uh, mark, and it means to become. And it means characteristic mark or um, distinguishing attribute. And, and it also just means character, which, and character is, um, one of the attributes or features that uh, make up or distinguish a person. So this is the thing that you're searching for when you when you say uh, you're. How do you find your dharma? So it's it's like, in a way, it's um, it's related to the sutra, uh, the the third yoga sutra, the famous one about after the yoga chitta vritti nirodha. Tada drashtahu swarupe avastanam. So it says yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, right? So it's arresting the thought waves that are coming in the mind. And then that's when the Sutra 3 comes, where it says, then you abide in your essence as seer to the world. Okay, and so, and so your essence, so that swarupa is intrinsic essence, or, and you could say you're this uh, peculiarity, this, um, dis, this one thing that distinguishes you when, when you strip away everything else, uh, kind of all um, imitation or conformity or it, it's what is the most unique thing about you the most peculiar. And of course, the, even the word peculiar brings up a fear, right? Because we're afraid of being different and being seen as different or being rejected for being different. And, and so 
this is part of the whole game of Dharma and why we even are searching for it in, in the first place is that it's hidden from us or it's obscured from us partly because it's not your ego that decides. Like, that's not how life works. You don't get to decide what your sacred work is. And that's part of the beauty of that it's, it's kind of handed to you or given to you, or you could even say thrust upon you um, and precisely so that it, you, it doesn't feed your ego to do your sacred work. In fact, you, you have to humble yourself or, or follow something other than your own will or your own sense of choice, right? And, um, and also then, so there's a kind of um, inevitable uh, shrouding of what this sacred work is just by being born and, um, and having an ego and then having to kind of overcome your ego to sleuth out what your, where your place is or what your work is. Um, but there's also this just, just straight ahead fear of um, being different. And, um, and this is why it can take so long to actually accept your peculiarities, accept the ways that you're different and embrace and actually go into those ways to find this sacred work or this kind of place that you, that's been reserved for you in the universe. Okay, so, so these ways that I'm going to give you to find your dharma, that was kind of the preamble and the, the questioning, okay? So just what does dharma mean? What is my dharma? What, what does that even mean to me? And, and so you have to really sit with that long and, and, and um, deeply. Okay, and so behind all of these options I'm going to give you, is this, okay? And that is longing. Okay, so this is part of what is absolutely essential. Okay, so to, so to me, I spent more than 10 years um, agonizing over um, what work I was gonna do in the world. And I, it was uh, one of the hardest Possibly in terms of emotionally and spiritually, the hardest time of my life. And I, I got completely exact, uh, almost to the point of despair and hopelessness because it went on for so long. And I, I've told the story, and many of you maybe have heard of it, about how I spent one year in career counseling and was no closer to figuring out what work I wanted to do. And... Um, and, but behind all that, all the time, and partly why I got to such a place of despair and why I stuck with it for whatever, 10 years without, without a clue on what, what was gonna be fulfilling to me, what was gonna give me meaning and a sense of purpose and inspiration, was the longing. Because I, I dearly wanted to know, and I kept searching. And, and, so the, and this is a deep theme. Okay, and, and, and it's, it's a, a longing to make a difference and to connect with something very deep and profound in yourself and, and the world. And it's really the subject of a lot of the bhakti poetry that you find uh, as part of the yoga. And so I'm gonna read you a few poems that speak to this longing because this is the root of it all. 
Okay, so if you want to find your dharma, tap your longing and milk it and be with it and don't fight it, but go into it and, and really honor it. Okay, and so here's one from Mira, uh, that beautiful po poetess who married Krishna in her mind. Krishna was her husband. And so she says, oh friends, I am mad with love. I am mad with love and no one sees. Okay, my mattress, my, so my mattress is thorns. It's nails, right? It's not a soft bed, it's thorns, nails. So the, and the beloved, that's Krishna, the beloved spreads open his bedding elsewhere, not with me. Um, so how can I sleep? Abandonment scorches my heart. How can I sleep? Abandonment scorches my heart. And only those who have felt the knife can measure the wound's deepness. Only those who have felt the knife can measure the wound's deepness. Only the jeweler knows the nature of the lost jewel. And I have lost him, Krishna. And anguish takes me from door to door, but no doctor answers. Mira calls her Lord. Oh, dark one, only you can heal this pain. Okay, I'm going to read that to you all through now. Oh, friends, I'm mad with love. And no one sees. My mattress is thorns. It's nails. The beloved spreads open his bedding elsewhere. How can I sleep? Abandonment scorches my heart. Only those who have felt the knife can measure the wound's deepness. Only the jeweler knows the nature of the lost jewel. I have lost him. Anguish takes me from door to door, but no doctor answers. Mira calls her Lord. Oh, dark one, only you can heal this pain. And here's another one from um, the Ball Poets. Uh, love this one. Okay, and so it says, and this one's like a celebration of, of desire, of your desire to reach that, the, the highest place in you, the most sacred. Okay, and, and for Mira, that, Krishna is symbolizing that, this, the depths, like wanting to get the very most out of your life. Okay, and so this poet says, while, while desire burns in the limbs, there is still time. Boil the juice on the fire of longing. Okay, so let's get that again. While desire burns in the limbs, there's still time. And boil the juice on the fire of longing to concentrate the essence. Okay, so the sweetness of syrup will ferment and sour unless it is stirred by controlled heat. Feelings evolve from desire and love shoots forth from lust. Okay, so this one's, it's saying that, so that when, while there's desire in your limbs, in your body, then you're, there's still time for you to get to this essence. But you've got to boil that uh, juice on the fire of, on the fire of longing 
and it has to be stirred on controlled heat, right? So you've got to harness your desire. So you've got to honor it, but you've also got to bring it under control. And, um, and then feeling, and feelings evolve from, from desire. So there's kind of this raw desire that turns into something tangible. What is this feeling? This, it's kind of coming towards manifestation. And love shoots forth from lust. So again, from this kind of raw material, desire has to be cultivated and uh, seen through. And another one. Okay, so it says, this one's from Rumi. And he says, so he's talking about the friend or the guest and this um, secret self inside that you're trying to reach through yoga. And he says, when I'm with you, we stay up all night. So when there's a connection with that self, we stay up all night. And then when you're not here, I can't go to sleep. And so then he says, praise God for those two insomnias and the difference between them. Okay, one is when, when you're connected, you're so inspired, sleep doesn't, doesn't even occur to you. And then when you're disconnected, <gasps> no sleep from the anguish. And the, so that praise God for both of those, the longing and the, the ecstasy of, of connection. Okay, and so we have not gotten anything practical yet. All right, but here we go with, with something practical. Okay, so one of the things you can do is, for one, is I, I encourage you to see the idea of Dharma as ha happening right during your practice and then also in a bigger sense. So just make that um, continual link up between these two aspects of Dharma. That, so don't make Dharma only about a big thing, like what's my work in this world? No, make it, what's my work in this asana? What is my duty? What is my action? Okay, and, um, and so here's what I, one of the things I recommend that you do. I call it take stock of your duties, okay? And so, and this could seem so, uh, you, you could overlook it, but, um, and let's just talk not in the asana for a minute. Let's just talk about your life, okay? That, so you've, through being, from being raised and becoming an adult, you've inherited a whole set of duties already, right? So you're already doing a dharma. Uh, you're already doing your duties to a certain degree and with a certain amount of, in, of commitment or lack of. So your duties in, might include your work, um, obligation or your uh, family, children, spouse, parents, uh, friends, uh, pets, whatever they are. Uh, what are those? What are the thing your responsibilities right now in your life? Okay. So one of the things about this sacred work is that. You start off, it, it, it can seem like you start off your life as a clean slate where you've got unlimited 
possibilities. You could be anything. You could be in relationship with anyone, right? And, um, but as the years pass and as your things kind of substantiate and you get a place in the world, the field narrows. Okay, so you get more and more specific from, from possibilities, realities are um, come into being. And so by taking stock of your, your duties, you can assess your, uh, how you feel towards them, like how inspired you feel, how committed you are, um, just how into them you are, and also how much leeway there is to change if you wanted to, or how satisfied are you, and, and how, um, how binding are they? And then you have to start making choices uh, depending upon what you find and what kind of freedom of choices that you have. And perhaps your dharma is, uh, you're already doing it. Or it, it could be with some small tweaks, you could reconfigure your duties and you would hit the mark. Or possibly you'll find that you are almost entirely wrongly obligated and that a lot of change needs to happen. Okay, but one way or another, you've got to kind of start sorting through and seeing what are my duties and what, what is my vision? What would I like to be my duties? And, and, and you're always negotiating this ego versus a kind of following the great spirit of life. Because part of the, the whole idea that you find yourself with a set of duties and that you can feel like, well, I didn't choose these and here I am with them. Well, that's partly just life, okay? And, that, and that's partly where, where life itself actually will steer you towards your, your peculiarities, your unique bent better than your ego will. But at the same time, you got to stand up for yourself and make choices and do your best to kind of control your destiny. So you're always kind of observing within yourself, what's the proportion here? So where am I just, have I been led into something uh, or am I being led into something good? Even though it's not necessarily what I choose or even if I have fear around it or resistance and it challenges me. And then also, then where am I just not exercising my right to choose and to make a new move or go into a new uh, place or a new relationship or something, right? Okay, and so, so this is key, okay? Very practical way of finding your dharma. And then within your asana practice, you see, to me, the, um, the connection there is that... So you have a specific body. And again, you, you, you didn't come out with the body that's a clean slate. So you didn't have infinite flexibility or strength. No, you had peculiarities, certain strengths, certain weaknesses, certain flexibilities, certain inflexibilities. And so you actually do have a dharma or a kind of set of duties to your asana practice to, to perform. And, and you, again, you can take stock of like what uh, in your asana selection, in the ways that you're going about the asanas, and, um, and 
um, tweak, make changes uh, based on taking stock of what are your duties? What, what, is the, what constitutes a skillful action in this moment or a skillful series of actions? So there you have it. Okay, um, now the second one I'm gonna to talk to you about is what, what I'm calling is a prolonged vision quest. Okay, and um, for me it was a big revelation when I read from Joseph Campbell. So I, I don't, most of us are familiar with the idea of vision quest, of like an aboriginal society, like that part of how uh, you transition from a child to an adult is to be um, kind of taken off to the cave by yourself and given minimal food, and you spend some time there um, questing for a vision, um, emptying out of the, the culture, the society, the company of others, uh, emptying out of all material, um, or the, uh, taking it down to the barest minimum in order to, like, to bring about a kind of neurotaha, a cessation of activity and, and a cessation of, ac of identification with um, thinking that you, that you get what you need from the outer world and from the material world. And so when, and Joseph Campbell, he wrote, which was so amazing to me is that it's not, you don't just do necessarily one vision quest and then you've got the aha moment and you're, you come out and you've got your place in society. No, you might have to do it repeatedly, uh, continually kind of coming back, um, going, withdrawing away um, simplifying, going to a, into a purification, a kind of um, some degree of fasting from material, not just food and drink, but all material, and um, including company and talking and, and get inward and doing it as often as is necessary. Okay, and so you can say that uh, your daily practice is a, a daily vision quest. But you also, if you're searching for your dharma, and in a big way, like if you're searching for like prioritizing your duties in your life, you may need to, to spend some extra time doing it. And, and your practice time might need uh, to be a little bit different, like, right, right, like just flowing through your series, um, five breaths and on to the next vinyasa and really driving and just um, getting a whole catharsis going and 90 minutes later you've sweated and purged and breathed and, um, and then you go on and get busy in your day that you may have to get more quiet, allow more time for just being receptive and um, slowing down, spending time by yourself and just being with yourself and um, watching your aspirations, watching your desires and, and reflecting on, um, on this idea of Dharma and letting things incubate and um, percolate and get their due time so that s something can arise within you and um, help you f find some direction. Okay, um, and here's another idea, okay, in, in, which is, um, to me, it's an amazing one, which is an, uh, a scary one in a way, but it's like you ask, to me, Dharma is very much wrapped up with um, lessening 
and ending suffering, okay? Your own suffering and the collective suffering of humanity. And so, and so the question to me is how do I personally um, heal, encounter, accept, manage, lessen, uh, bear my suffering? Okay, so this is gold in terms of your dharma. Like, how do I encounter my own suffering? And to so me, this is why I teach yoga. It's because, because practicing yoga is one of the main ways that I can walk in this world among my suffering. And I can reverse some of it. I can accept it more easily. I can bear the burden, right? Because being alive is automatically to suffer. Okay, and being alive is automatically to make mistakes and to be less than perfect, to miss the mark. So that means that somehow I've got to have a ways to encounter the, the grief, the sadness, the frustration from the disappointments and the, the failures and the, the hardships and the challenges that, that come my way. And, and the universe arranges it so that it, it's not by getting away from your suffering. Like that, that's partly why we even want a dharma is because we think that we imagine that like doing some work that's meaningful to us means we'll never suffer, right? Or something like that. And, um, and to me, I feel that that's actually the opposite. That, um, that James Hillman, he puts it like this. He says, the wound is the eye. Is a, the eye, like E-Y-E. So it's the, it's the, the, it, the, the, your wound, your pain is the, what gives you the lens, what gives you the perspective into the, into wisdom, into the, the insight into how to live a meaningful life and a, a fulfilling life and a soulful life. Okay. And so you sharing your suffering or how you manage it, that is your Dharma. So you've got to go into your suffering and, and kind of transform it or work with it and be with it and then ask yourself, how do I do that? And then turn that into a sharing somehow. Okay, so then <clears throat> here's another one. It's similar to the, your, your suffering, but I call it follow your anger. And so, so that whole idea, I love that poem about um, while there's still desire fire in your limbs, then there's still time. And so you have two major sources of um, desire, okay? And one we can call fight or flight, okay? And that's the, the, this survival instinct that whenever we feel threatened, that we're either gonna stand and fight or we're going to run, okay? And so that there's a kind of aggression is what you could call it, ahimsa. And it's what leads to the very first principle of yoga, the first yama of the first limb, which is ahimsa. So the opposite of um, violence or aggression. Or, and, and so that it doesn't mean that you never get mad or that you shun anger. No, it, 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 it's, it's exactly like that poem said. No, you have to um, actually put it on the controlled heat. So it's, it means to enter into relationship with whatever makes you want to either fight or run. 
away in fear. Okay, and so, so that, what frustrates you, what gets you, your hackles up, what makes you want to run for the hills, oh, those are where your dharma lies. Okay, and it's what I call um, writing a wrong. Or, where It's like you want to fi- find, find the wrong that you want to make right. It, so, in, and in, so instead of do, having the playing out the instinctual response to feeling threatened, you transform it into sacred work, right? So instead of fighting, getting angry or um, lashing out or wanting revenge, or instead of um, the, all these subtle ways, the subtle and not so subtle ways that we run away from things and dodge and, and move around and avoid. Okay, and so this is key to the Dharma. And uh, for me, like, um, I teach what I call a system within the system of Ashtanga. And part of it comes from not agreeing with much of the way the system is taught. And to me, I see a lot of wrong. And so, and, and so, but I, it took me decades though to channel what I saw as wrong into what I feel is something right. And that, so that, and, and in that way you, it's like your Dharma is where something you value is not being represented. And this is where that peculiarity aspect comes. That it's like a lot of things that get me riled up don't get another person riled up, right? Or what, fe- what I get afraid of and want to run away from, somebody else doesn't. So it's very um, peculiar to me. And it's like I need to stand up and represent for that thing or manifest it if it's going to be manifested. And this is true on the mat, too. You, and this is why uh, challenging poses and things that frustrate you are essential in the practice and that you can't always just go for the, the easy uh, thing, okay? It's because, because you want to encounter, you want to feel that fire of desire, like that you want to want something to be different, to change, and to not that that doesn't come easily. And then, and, and frustration or anger or wanting to run away from it come up in you, right? And then, and you want to uh, meet the test of that thing uh, successfully as a way of finding your dharma, okay? And to me, that is the closer definition of ahimsa. So it's, it's not to reject your anger. It's to accept it, to channel it, to work with it, and, and sometimes um, chopping it or denying it or um, kind of refusing to be angry is an effective strategy. But often other um, responses are also a part of ahimsa, like um, resisting in a very conscious way, in a very, or, or um, what I'm saying is like making a wrong, uh, turning a wrong into a right. See, and, and I love that. See, to me, I don't, I don't want to dwell on the negative. If I find something wrong, I want to b- give an alternative that steers, that steers those who are open to it towards something that I see is more right. Okay, and then we're coming to the last one here, um, which is um, what I'm calling samadhi 
or it's, and it's also related to brahmacharya, uh, another one of the yamas. So these two um, main forces of desire that come through the human being are the fight or flight, so this aggressive kind of instinct, and the sexual or creative um, instinct. And to me, in one way, it's like, um, I I see one is like, it's a kind of the no energy, or like, no, and being frustrated and angry and aggressive or that, and then, or the yes, and like, it's desire for more of that. That, and so, and lust or sexual energy is uh, kind of a, a very um, visible representative of the whole uh, creative energy that leads to the klesha called raga, which is attachment to pleasure. Okay, and so anything that kind of we derive pleasure from is a f- like the raw form of desire that was talked about in that poem. So like, so love springs forth from lust, from this raw desire. And, and samadhi, the, the word is so beautiful because it, it, um, it kind of highlights that. It means absorption, and absorption means um, to be fascinated with or even enraptured by. So to fall in love with something to such an extraordinary degree that the, the subject and object cease to exist. Okay, and so it's like, Joseph Campbell's thing of following your bliss. Um, And brahmacharya is um, one of the yamas, and it gets translated as celibacy, which I think is a wrong translation or a very extreme translation that applies to very few people ever uh, in its most extreme form. But but it does mean like... uh, deciding to enter into conscious relationship with libido, with this force of desire, like what what really gives you pleasure. And if you look at the word brahmacharya, it does, you don't have to go with that kind of traditional celibacy uh, meaning because Brahma, it just means like holy or relating to sacred knowledge or sacred or even divine or friend or guest and or supreme spirit. And then charya is simply um, activity or in accordance with the supreme spirit or walking or roaming about or visiting um, or concern for. Okay, so it's like dwelling with this, with your desire. And then also the, the idea of the vision quest and like what represents the highest good to you? What's the ultimate me? To me, it's like a sifting through desires, like pleasure. Because so, like you know, eating good foods or these kind of base, um, baseline material pleasures, uh, you're, those are fine. But if that's your whole definition of... Um, creativity or how to use your, this desire you have for pleasure, well, that's going to lead to suffering and, and not to discovering your dharma. See, so in a way, you keep elevating, keep sublimant, sublimating your, um, this desire for pleasure to its higher and higher kind of manifestation. And it's not hard to do. Or we could say it's very possible to do right? That there's something very deeply satisfying about loving versus lust. Like when you 
when you are in relationship with people because you love them, right? And, and then also the, the, the whole idea of sacred duty, that the part of why we long for it and why we would spend so much time. Like I spent uh, 10 years wondering, and then even when I discovered yoga, I spent another 30 years uh, coming around to the point where I am now, where the, that, the specificity or the ripening of kind of what, what I think of as my peculiar gift or my sacred work is still crystallizing. And that there's supreme pleasure and fulfillment in that. Okay, that makes like eating a delicious apple not quite as good as it could seem, right? Like there's levels of fulfillment and pleasure in life. And the best things aren't necessarily these um, smaller things that we, we get so attached to. Now, uh, I'm going to wind it down, but I have, and so I have a few things to close with you that uh, really want to uh, drive home. And one is, this is a beautiful poem by um, Rainier Maria Rilke. And um, it's called The Man Watching. And you see, this is what I want you to think about. Like, this is why I love the idea of Dharma and why I've, I make it like the center of my teaching and the center of my life. And this poem, what it's saying, it, it applies equally to your asana practice and to the, the Dharma of your practice itself and the Dharma of your greater uh, life. And so he says, um, it's called The Man Watching. So he says, I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I hear the far off fields say things that I can't bear without a friend and I can't love without a sister. Okay, the storm, the storm, the shifter of shape drives on across the woods and across time and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in a psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. Seriousness and weight and eternity. Okay, and then, and here it is. Here it is, you guys. So what we choose to fight is so tiny. And what fights with us is so great. Okay, so if, if only we would let ourselves be dominated, as some things do, by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. Okay, and then, so when we, when we, and when we win, it's with small things. And it's the triumph itself makes us small. And what is extraordinary and eternal, what is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. Okay, so and here we go. I'm going to talk to you after this, but here, let's keep going. So when we win, it's, it's with small things. And it's the triumph itself that makes us small. And so this is true of asana and this idea of dharma, 
Like the very fact that we're searching for it is awesome. When we, if we just found it, it'd be so small. And the same with the asana. We're not satisfied easily. So when we win, it's with small things. And the triumph itself makes us small. And what is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. Okay, I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. And, and whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand. Okay, so whoever was beaten by this angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. So winning does not tempt that man. And, and that is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Okay, and so this is Dharma. Okay, the very fact, you, you, we can never know. You can never complete that work. You can never really get to, what is that? And, and, and if you can get to it, it's a small victory it's, and it makes you smaller. Okay, so you've got to be able to withstand the heat because Dharma is a big thing, right? And just like not being satisfied in your poses. Okay, this is why I, I, I urge you to keep perfecting, keep shaping, keep uh, exploring and delving in. Because you're wrestling with the big opponent that, who, that what is extraordinary and internal doesn't want to be bent by you, right? It wants to bend you. And the, and the person that submits to that being bent is the greater for it. And then lastly, this is a little bit different. But I'm going to end this with you because we can, t so, so in, the one, in one sense then we are kind of um, radically obsessive about Dharma and like wrestling with the angel constantly and, um, and just not insisting on an easy victory to get to that. Like, because we're talking about big, like... What do you, you out there, each one of you, what's perfection to you? What really is like my life led as the ultimate me? Like, and, and like I mean it, like death is right there tomorrow going to take me. What am I going to do here? Right? And so there it is. I'm just giving you that, that and there's a, there's a deep attachment involved in that. And so much um, soul anguish right? So much um, challenge and dissatisfaction. And, and so I want to give you this contrasting thing I'm going to leave you with, um, which comes from the, um, f another uh, yama, the fifth one called a parigraha. And it means non-possessiveness. Okay. And one of the th amazing things about a parigraha is the gift that it, the Yoga Sutras say that you get from being established in a parigraha is you understand the reason you were born. 
Okay, so you understand your dharma when you are successful in practicing uh, non-possessiveness. And non-possessiveness, I want to go into it with you a little bit, because it, it generally gets translated in a way that's not particularly usable, like um, celibacy with brahmacharya. So it's like not having possessions, like a wandering ascetic, um, a yogi that has a begging bowl, and that's all their worldly possessions. Okay, and that's a, that's a very important image to have for um, valuing the simple life, but is impractical for most most of us, okay? And But if you really go into uh, a parigraha in a more um, kind of conceptual way, it, it has these things, the the word parigraha. So a, a, pari, a parigraha is the opposite of parigraha. And parigraha is um, assistance, help, taking, grace, um, choice, uh, a claim on or selection, uh, comprehending, understanding, control. So it's the opposite of it's. So instead of needing assistance or help, you don't need those. You don't need assistance. You don't need help when when you're established in a parigraha. You don't need to take. Okay. You, and this is the whole spirit of dharma is giving. Okay. It's the work that you're doing. It's what you're giving, not what you're taking. Okay. And and even grace. And, and then those words, choice, selection, comprehending, understanding. Okay, so you don't need choice when you're established in parigraha. You don't need selection. You don't need comprehension. You don't need understanding and you don't need to control. And think about this in terms of the idea of a sacred duty. You don't even wonder, you don't find your dharma in this case. It's basically whatever is there is what you do and you don't need to, you don't even need a choice. Okay, you just look in front of you and do your duty. And you don't even need the concept of that some, uh, the great spirit is guiding you to do this sacred work. And it's not that the great spirit isn't guiding you to do the sacred work. Okay, it's just you don't need that kind of um, verbal or logical reassurance all the time. Right? That, in fact, you are so solid in your uh, kind of perspective of what you are doing on this planet that you become the giver of uh, that. You, like, you, right? You're not needing proof. You are the proof. And also, you're able to drop the, the forms. Okay, and, uh, and I have one poem that um, speaks to that that I'm going to end with, um, and that's from Kabir. And it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. And it, it speaks about that wanting creature inside of us that we, that we need on one hand, but at the same time, we need to balance that. And so that po this poem speaks to that juxtaposition. So he says, um, I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that riverbank or, or anyone moving about or resting? There, and there's no river at all and no boat and no boatman. And there is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. And there is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. So all of this, all of these words, all of these 
conceptions. So, and, and then he says it, there is, and there is no body and no mind. And then he goes further. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? Okay, that hunger, that longing. He says, in that great absence, you will find nothing. So without that thirst, you'll find nothing. And then he says, be strong then and enter into your own body. See, that is so key. Enter into your own body because there you'll have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off someplace else. And then Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Oh. Okay, I'm going to give it to you one more time all the way through. I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank or resting? There is no river at all and no boat and no boatman. And there is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. And there is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. That there you will have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off someplace else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. All right, so there you have it. So hopefully that gives you some ideas for how to find your dharma. It gives you some thoughts. And thank you for joining me for this installment of the Asana Kitchen podcast.